Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury at Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain on the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Back in July, I visited Eton and I caught up with well-known author and journalist and historian Andy Saunders, who's a lifelong devotee to the history of the Battle of Britain on both sides, German and British. We recorded this episode in Andy's writing room, which is known as the War Office. It's a separate building behind his house, with walls lined with aviation books and memorabilia. The perfect place for an aviation writer. Here's the episode. 
Well, I'm sitting in the war office with Andy Saunders. Hi, Andy. Hi, Dave. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Good to meet you at last. Um, now, Andy, you're a historian um, specialising in Battle of Britain, but also uh, German history as well of World War II. Um, can you start by taking me right back to the beginning of how you got involved in history? Okay. Um, well, it's a bit of a, it was a bit of a long journey, but um, I, I grew up... Um, in the southeast corner of England, Kent, or Sussex, really. But, um, and, um, uh, of course, that was, you know, where the Battle of Britain was fought. Um, and I also grew up in the airfix kit and war comic generation. Yeah. And, and I used to listen to stories from my, from my mother, particularly, and from aunts and uncles about the air battles that they'd seen. And it just completely fascinated me, the, the fact that they'd seen you know these, these battles going on and and I perhaps would make a model of a hurricane and my uncle would come around and say oh yeah I remember you know seeing a hurricane coming over chasing a German bomber and it's like wow you yeah. know that was and it really sort of inspired me and history had always been my thing yeah. so um that that was sort of how I I sort of uh, started with it and then um I, I distinctly remember on one uh, Sunday afternoon I went for a walk with my mother and we ended up walking around the local cemetery, mm-hmm. and there was a row of five white crosses to German airmen okay. who'd been killed. And uh, I, I suppose I was about ten or eleven, you know, old, old enough to sort of understand and, and, and know a little bit about the subject. So yeah. I said to my mother, "Well, you know, what's the story here?" And, um, and she said, "Oh, they're, they're German airmen." And I saw three of those shot down, and you know, it. it it completely just—I was just so fascinated by it, and 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 as I got a little bit older, I thought I'm going to delve a bit further into these stories, which I did. So I just started researching stuff locally, and then when I was about fifteen or sixteen, I suppose I joined the Air Cadets, um, and um, did a bit of flying with them. But one uh, one particular summer holiday, uh, a friend of mine wanted me to go fishing with him, river fishing. And the idea of fishing to me, uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, and, um, you know, all due respect to your listeners who are fishermen, yeah. I couldn't think of anything worse that I wanted. It just seemed, you know, like awful pastime. Anyway, <laughs> I was persuaded to go uh, river fishing with my friend, and we just sat there staring at this float in the water for God knows how long. Nothing happened. I decided to go for a walk and went for a walk down the riverbank. And the most extraordinary thing was that suddenly sticking out of the water, I could see what to me appeared to be a propeller blade. Okay. And it was a propeller blade with a yellow tip and, you know, about sort of two, three feet of propeller blade. Yeah. And um, I went back to my friend who was fishing and I said, oh, I said, yeah, there's a propeller of a, he said, oh, yeah, he said, that's the, uh, that's the. That's the bomber. He said, "We don't go. We don't won't fish down there." He said, "Because the line always gets caught in the wreckage." Yeah. So this was pretty close to my home, and uh, I went to see a friend of mine who um, was very much older than me, but he he ran a farm nearby, and and I said, and he was he was into aviation. He had his own little airstrip, and he flew. And I said, Peter, you know what's what's the story of this propeller blade? This would have been about 1968, I guess. Yeah. Um, and he said, oh, he said, it's still there. He said, that's a um, uh, RAF B-25. He said, I, I saw it crash. Um, 
So he said, it's, it's still there. So I said, yeah, it's sticking out of the water. So he said, well, let's take the tractor down there and pull it out, which right. we did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it, it really just sort of started from there and it, it snowboarded really. And then um, at around about that time, my brother-in-law was at, um, was at university in Cambridge and um, sort of fairly unusually, he, he was a uh, uh, well, unusually for, um, for for students of the day, he was married to to my sister to my sister, obviously. Yeah. Um, and um, so they were living in Cambridge, and I went to stay with them. And it was at exactly the same time that they were filming the Battle of Britain at Duxford. Right. So I was down to Duxford every day, um, watching. You know, the weather mostly was terrible, and I didn't see very much. But I was desperately excited to see. You know these rows of Spitfires, Hurricanes, uh, you know Bouchon, you know one nine's the Heinkels, the whole lot. You know, yeah. Um, and I just stood and gazed at these things, and I've still got a photograph somewhere which I took on my little, you know, box camera of these specks in the distance, which were the Heinkels and the Messerschmitts. Um, and where I stood, every time I drive by there now, I think about it. Where I stood, I stood and and uh, on a fence looking onto the airfield and it's exactly where the M25 uh, M sorry the M11 is now the motorway that goes past Duxford right um uh so that was you know completely fascinating um and then I was there the day they blew the hangar up okay uh, and uh so it was you know it was just like this mind-blowing experience the whole thing and then I came back home from my sisters in uh, in Cambridge and just happened to go to uh, to Eastbourne uh, on the Sussex coast for a day. I would often go down to Eastbourne and uh, just happened to be on the seafront and heard this sound. Uh, initially, I heard the sound of a helicopter. And then I saw a Spitfire and um, one of the, the 109, the Bouchon uh, 109s. Um, and they were shooting that famous scene in Battle of Britain film where... Um, uh, where Sergeant Pilot Andy gets shot down off Beachy Head. Right. And, right. you know, you remember the scene where, you know, jump, Andy, jump, you yeah. know, and you see the thing, you know, going down. Yeah. Um, and um, so I, I actually watched that being filmed from uh, from the seafront at, at, uh, at Eastbourne. And in the background, in, the, in that shot, um, you know, people that know the geography, you can see Beachy Head and then you, it pans down to, to Eastbourne. And there's a big, huge monstrosity of a white tower block that was built in the 1960s wasn't there in the war obviously uh and in fact i'm standing just in front of it so okay. my my claim to fame is that i'm in the battle of britain <laughs> film but you can't see me <laughs> brilliant <laughs> so that that was really how it all started and then i started with some you know friends and colleagues and we looked at um we started looking at aircraft wreck sites around sussex and kent and in those days, there was it was everywhere, you know. Nobody had a lot of stuff just hadn't been cleared up, you know. Yeah. We went to a wood somewhere in uh, in West Sussex, and there was the complete wing of a Heinkel one eleven, you know, still with the the, the cross painted on it, uh, yeah. just laying in the wood. Wow! Um, and um, uh, the, the whole thing just fascinated me that you know could find tangible relics of uh, of the Battle of Britain. But then the thing that fascinated me more. Well, really, was the human interest stories behind them? You know, okay, that's fascinating. That's a hindcourt, but what was the story here? Yeah. Who were the people that were flying it? Um, 
who shot it down? When did it get shot down? So that that's really what um, you know what what sparked my interest. Right. And I mean, uh, the the amount of archive material that I've built up over the years is 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 kind of insane, really. I mean, some of it you're looking at now. I mean, those filing cabinets there. So there's two filing cabinets, four, four drawers in total, and they are stuffed full from back to front with uh, Battle of Britain um, accounts um, of civilians, pilots, aircrew, air British, German. Wow. Um, yeah, so it, it's been a, a sort of life's passion, really, and, like you know, really almost um, as soon as I was uh, old enough to take an interest in such things, I've been, in, you know, fully involved in it. And so you started uh, tracking down the pilots and the aircrew and the... Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, who was the first that you actually met and sat down and interviewed? Do you um, yeah, I, I remember it was um, it was Johnny Kent, a uh, Canadian um, uh, a group captain, um, and uh, yeah, uh, he was a, a fascinating individual. And he'd been involved with three hundred three squadron, the POTUS squadron in yep. the Battle of Britain. And then he went on to lead ninety two squadron. Okay, um, and he was a very um, Sort of a very quietly spoken, quite a timid man, appeared to be painfully shy, um, and to me it just seemed incredible that this chap had, you know, been involved in in leading um, Polish pilots into action, you know, in in his flight in three hundred three squadron, yeah. and then leading ninety two squadron. It, it just didn't seem to be the sort of person that would have done that. Anyway, so he was he was the first one. Yeah. Okay. Um, we. Was there many people at the time doing that, tracking down veterans and recording? Them? Um, well, the the were, but not many. Um, and actually, it was quite it was relatively difficult task back in the seventies. Um, uh, well, I say difficult. It if you compare what I and my colleagues were were doing then to to what you can do now, I, I mean. Researching where people were, where they lived, finding people, yeah. um, was you know it was quite an uphill struggle. It would involve perhaps you'd find a na- an unusual name. Case in point, um, and this would have been probably late seventies, yeah. early eighties. There was um, I was involved with uh, a Spitfire which was found on the beach at Calais, and uh, it had gone down in May nineteen forty. It emerged out the sands, and that was Spitfire P9374, which was a Mark One Spitfire, and it, it landed there. The chaps, uh, the pilot's name was um, uh, Pilot Officer Casanova, and I was fairly sure that he would probably still be alive. There was a good chance he would still be alive. He was taken prisoner, yeah. um, survived the war, so. I didn't know where in the country he came from, and I thought the it's a very unusual name. So I started ploughing through all the telephone directories in the local library, and eventually I found somebody, you know, right initials Casanova, phoned up, and it was the right address, uh, right right telephone number. Um, but unfortunately, the lady answered the phone, and it turned out that she was his widow, and he died only a matter of weeks beforehand. So he never knew that. We'd actually just found his Spitfire in the beach at Calais, oh, but wow. um, okay. so but uh, you know I just sort of mentioned that to show how difficult 
difficult is a wrong is the wrong word. How, how much of an uphill struggle it was to do the research in those days, pre-internet days. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The internet's made things so much easier to track people down and um, and archives. I mean, yeah, so many archives yeah. online. Yeah. Um, so at that point where you started tracking people down like this and recording their stories, were you intending to write books or was it really for your own interest? No, it's really for my own interest. I mean, I, I then had a, a, a proper job, as it were, which was not anything to do with uh, aviation. Yeah. So this was very much a hobby that, well, probably not a hobby, obsession, probably. Yeah. Um, and um, I was really only gathering this stuff for my own interest and fascination. I, I started to dabble in writing magazine articles and things like that, but it was, you know, that wasn't the object of the exercise at all. Um, in, again, in the late 70s, I got involved with um, Winston Ramsey, who publishes or published the After the Battle series, and, mm. um, and he contacted me one day and said, uh, we're going to do this book, Battle of Britain, then and now, and it's going to be every single day of the Battle of Britain, all the losses, uh, everything is going to be covered. Yeah. Um, and I remember having a conversation with him, and I said, you know, Winston, you know, you're never going to do that. It's just, it's, it's bonkers. <laughs> and here we are, sort of forty odd years later, and I'm now got the job of editing the <laughs> a revised <laughs> version of the book, which is coming out in. Uh, in 2025 so but but yeah sorry that was a bit of a, a long answer to your question but yeah. really I never did this initially started this with the intention that I was going to eventually turn it into my job yeah wow okay um, so when did you actually uh, sit down and write your first book ooh um, that probably wasn't until about 1980 I think yeah yeah and which was that? Which was your first book? So, uh, well, it, I did it with a, a friend of mine, um, and because of because my f real focus of interest had always been from the very outset the Battle of Britain, in terms of how it was fought in the area where I lived, uh, we, we did a little book called um, Battle Over Sussex, which incredibly is still in print. Um, okay. Um, which was it was just published by a, a little local publisher who mostly did railway books strangely enough okay. and, um, uh, and there it is yeah. um, so so it's called Battle Over Sussex and it was by Middleton Press and I think it's on about its 10th or 11th reprint now wow. um, so you know it's a fairly it was a fairly amateurish niche publication but um, uh, well, it was you know t it turned out as a book to be incredibly successful yeah. which was um a bit unfortunate, really, because my friend Pat and I, who put the book together, we thought, well, yes, never, they're going to sell a few hundred copies, you know. Yeah. And we were given uh, an opportunity of uh, either having a, a one-off payment or a royalty deal. Right. And we said, oh, we'll we take the one-off payment, thank you very much, you know. <laughs> right. We'll take, we take our £500, which seemed an awful lot of money then. Um, and now, of course, it's on you know, reprint 12... And, I mean, this was 1980, and it's still going. Yeah. So, anyway. That's amazing. Yeah. Mind you, I suppose if you had a royalty deal, it might not have been published no. so often. No, anyway, no, so. that's true. <laughs> or I'd have earned about 20 pence anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, how many books have you actually published now? Uh, about, I think it's about 20. I don't know. I'm not, I'm it, I, I love doing books, yeah. um, but actually, to put it 
bluntly. Uh, well, there's there's no money in doing them, and I, you know, okay, I also do it for the love of it. Yeah. Um, but actually, I can't afford to do work for nothing. Do you know what I mean? I have, yeah, yeah, you know, so yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, and with average magazine articles or some magazine articles, you know, you might earn three or four hundred pounds. Yeah. Um, and you know, for a and and you could perhaps sit down and write that in an evening. Mm. You know, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas a book could take you week months of you know evenings weekends you know yeah. um hours and hours and hours of work plus the research and at the end of the day you know and i'm talking in today's prices you know if you if you earn three grand out of it three thousand pounds you'd be lucky you know right. and it, so and also i a lot most of the books that i write now are you know, yes, they are serious history books, if you like, but they're kind of um, more general interest, you know, slightly wider. They're not academic, that's what I'm yes, trying to say. Yes, yes. Um, because I just wouldn't have the time to, to write an academic type. I'm not an academic, but yeah. I wouldn't have time to write an academic type of book with all the references and the, you know, so on and so forth, which is brilliant. Uh, you know, I'd love to be able to do that, but I, I don't have the time and I wouldn't earn enough money out of it. Yeah, bluntly. Yeah. Uh, uh, clearly, though, your writing appeals to the masses. If it's the first one, well, still yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it seems to. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I think, I think, I think it does. So, uh, over the twenty books over all of these years, it's about almost forty. Well, forty something years. Yeah. Um, uh, how wide have you sort of gone with the topic? Is it mainly Battle of Britain stuff? No, sometimes a bit wider than that. Um, I, I did a book uh, with another author, a chap called um, uh, Philip Kaplan, an American. We did a book called Little Friends, which was published by Random House in New York. Yeah. And that was the, it was a sort of coffee table type book. Uh, uh, but it, it was the, I think the, the subtitle to it was uh, The Fighter Pilot Experience in w World War Two, yep. And we covered all nationalities, you know, German, British, American. Yeah. Uh, um, so that, and that covered much wider than the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain was just a very small part of it. Right, yeah, of course. Um, there's, there's always new stories to find and, and, and so many stories out there. So I guess each of your books, you've found new discoveries and, and each of your articles, new discoveries along yeah, the way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I... I yeah, I don't think there's a single one that I've written which um, I haven't unearthed things that I didn't know or people generally didn't know. You know, I mean, one one book that I did quite recently was this one, um, which I'm showing you now, which is um, Lone Wolf, which is the story of... Um, the subtitle is The Remarkable Story of Britain's Greatest Night Fighter Ace of the Blitz, Flight Lieutenant Richard Plain Stevens, DSO, DFC and Bar. Yeah. And his story is just absolutely, you know, completely fascinating. Not not Battle of Britain at all. Um, he was an extraordinary individual, very unusual individual. Uh, and um, he was... Uh, I've got a letter, actually, from uh, John Cunningham, the night fighter pilot, mm -hmm. who yep. wrote to me about... Uh, Stevens a long long time ago and he said but of course you know Stevens was um, he was the original cat's eyes pilot he said you know he as you know um, 
Cunningham ended up with the nickname Cat's Eyes to you know hide the story of radar and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, but but Stevens really was a cat's eyes pilot. He okay. was flying Hurricanes at night in forty forty one. Uh, no, you know, no radar, nothing. You know, he it was just the Mark One eyeball to find the enemy. Wow! And he was extraordinary. He had incredible night vision, uh, which was something that he, even as a child manifested itself. Incredible individual. Um, uh, but sadly, he ends up um, dying in uh, one of the first intruder operations over Holland in um, uh, later on in forty one. But um, uh, yeah. so. His story had never really been told before, and what had been told was completely false. There was a a story that was put out by Stevens and I think the Air Ministry in 1941 that uh, effectively said that the reason that he, uh, that what drove him to shoot down these German aircraft is that his wife and children have been killed in the Blitz. Right. And actually, that was completely untrue. Um, he was separated from his wife. His uh, One of his... Uh, he had twin children, and one of them, the little girl, died in a, uh, a freak domestic accident to, at the time of the Blitz, but not related to it. Right. Um, and for reasons that we don't really know, he he'd, Stevens had put around the story that his wife and children were dead and had been killed in the Blitz, and nobody ever challenged that. That was a story that appeared in the newspapers in 1941, yeah. um, but completely untrue. Um, and in fact, you know, not many years ago, I was in touch with his son, who incredibly lives in New Zealand. Right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess once you had started to put books out, you get wider recognition around the country and and uh, other pilots would have started to contact you and it, it would have uh, brought in a lot more yeah um it no it did um and and i i used to go to as far as i could i would go to to reunions battle of britain reunions uh, I even went to to germany quite often to go to to german bomber and fighter pilot reunions and that that was an interesting experience in itself um so yeah, and I, I, I don't think I, I don't think there were that many that proactively sought me out, as it were. Yeah. Uh, there were one or two, um, but even by the nineteen, late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, a lot of these veterans were getting a bit weary of people contacting them and wanting letters and yeah. stories and what have you. So you, you had to be conscious of that, and you had to be sensitive to that. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it is one of those things. You know, as, as I'm sure you know, we, you know, when you work in this field, it sort of generates its own momentum, and you, you know, people do say, you know, so, suddenly you might just meet someone randomly, and they say, oh, you know, my neighbour was so and so, he was a pilot, or yeah. you know, whatever. So yeah, yeah, no, that does happen. Yeah. Uh, also, you were talking about with the the recovery of wrecks, yeah, and and that. Uh, what was the most Amazing or complete one that you one, yeah. one that's stuck in your mind. Well, I, th- I think it probably was the Spitfire on the beach at uh, Calais, mm-hmm. um, and this would have been, um, I guess, about nineteen eighty eighty one. Uh, one day, I 
uh, I got a letter. Uh, I don't know if you remember letters, you know, before yeah. emails. Yeah. Um, Those papery things. Yes. <laughs> from a gentleman who was the uh, the manager of the hoverport at Calais. So uh, hovercraft, there's another thing that some yeah. people won't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he contacted me and said, I understand that you're, uh, you're interested in such things. He said, but we've just found a Spitfire on the beach. Um, he said, we've had to uh, move a shingle bank or a sandbank to, to better allow for the hovercraft operations. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's caused the, the, tie, the, the currents to scour out some sand further down. And the Spitfire has appeared out the sand. Wow, okay. And, and he said, it's a complete Spitfire, you know. Anyway, I <laughs> thought, oh, you know, this bloke's a nutter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I phoned him up. And um, fortunately, he spoke good English because my French was pretty abysmal. Um, and he said, oh, no, no, monsieur, you know, it's a, it's a complete Spitfire, you know. Um, it's the propeller and the wings. And, and he said, it's complete so I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he said, I'll send you some photos. What's your address? So I gave my address and I thought, well, I'm never going to hear from this crazy individual again. It's yeah. clearly not a Spitfire. Yeah. And lo and behold, about a week or so later, a packet of photographs arrived. And there, sitting on the beach, is a Spitfire. <laughs> Very recognisable as a Spitfire. Engine cowlings, you know, the cockpit, everything is there. You know, yeah. complete. Um, the only thing that was sort of missing was the tail, but that was slightly buried back into the sand. Wings. Um, uh, anyway, so this suddenly cha- it was a bit of a game changer in terms of how I <laughs> dealt with it. So I contacted him again. I think I probably fell over trying to get to the telephone to yeah. call him. <laughs> and um, and he said, oh, he said, well, we're going to, we're going to recover it uh, tomorrow. Can you get over? And I said, but, you know, no, I, I, I can't. Uh, I think you know, I, I had a proper job then and I couldn't mm. get over. And, yeah. um, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, come across at the weekend. He said, uh, go, go to your local travel agent and uh, there will be tickets there for you for the hovercraft and I'll meet you off the hovercraft and I'll show you. He said, because we're going to take it all to the hoverport. Okay. So, um, so, I, you know, so I went across um, and... Unfortunately, uh, the, and it really was unfortunate that what the the people that recovered it had really no idea what they were doing, and uh-huh. they just thought, okay, well, let's just put a steel cable around the engine, another couple around the wings, and pull with a tractor. Yeah. Well, you know what happened was they effectively just pulled the thing apart. Um, not helped, of course, by the fact that it, it you know had been weakened by corrosion. It had been there forty years, yeah. and it was full of wet sand. Yeah. And wet sand weighs, you know, a ton of wet, a, ten, a ton of ordinary sand. I think I worked out, or somebody told me that a ton of ordinary sand, when wet, weighs something like eight and a half tons or something. It's okay. just incredible. Wow. I mean, it's just so there was this enormous weight which just pulled the airframe apart. Yeah. So all you ended up with was there were, there were big sections of wings, the the leading edge sections of the of the wings, and the big hefty D boxes, they they stayed intact. The rest of it was just confetti, the, the, the rear part of the wings. Yeah. Um and um there was uh the engine was was pretty good. Uh, and there were all sorts of ancillary other bits and pieces. They'd recovered all eight 
Brownings out of the the wings, and um, but but the question was where which aeroplane was it? Yeah. And they had no idea. Uh, and the uh, the hoverport manager took me into the the workshops at the back of the hoverport, and uh, one of his men uh, was there in his traditional you know. Uh, blue French overalls with a beret and smoking a Goulois cigarette or whatever and uh, he got a wire um, a wire um, wheel brush you know on, it, yep. on his drill yep. and he was cleaning up the um, uh, the ejector chutes from the the Brownings yep. and they were all they were all laid out and they were spotless shiny silver and he was on the last one and I just said stop stop I said to him and he was poised and because painted on the the ejector chute, it had the aircraft number P nine three seven four. Right, and that was the last number that he was about to obliterate. You know? <laughs> Otherwise, we possibly wouldn't have ever known. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, we we got the engine number, um, but actually, unless you plow through thousands of aircraft record cards, yeah. you're not necessarily going to match it. Yeah. Plus. Um, Engines were changed, you know, so and they didn't always record the the number change, the the, the number of the new engine. Yep. Um, so that would have been a pretty hopeless task. But as it happened, when we pulled the aircraft record card from the uh, historical branch, and all this took days, you know, it was not like now you can just do Go it on, on the internet on. or yep. make a, you know. Uh, so we eventually got the aircraft record card, the Air Ministry Form seventy eight, uh, and there it was, P nine three seven four date of loss and lo and behold because it was such a new aeroplane it had never had an engine change so the engine number that was recorded on the car was exactly the one on the right. on the wreck right. so we had p9374 so that was probably the most to me that was the most incredible find um i i'd only regret that i never saw it in its complete state yeah. before they pulled it apart yeah. but many years down further down the road the wreckage was uh, acquired and has, has been reconstructed and, you know, it, it's flown again. Um, right. So, you know, it's it's an incredible story. And, you know, um, it, this isn't particularly a plug for a book, but I did actually, one of the books I did was Spitfire P9374, which uh, might be a, a book that you're familiar with. Yeah, I have seen the um, photos. And, and there are photographs there of the, oh, the yes. Spitfire yeah. uh, sitting on the beach. Um, wow. So, um, so what was the the story behind it? What squadron was it? So it's ninety two squadron, yeah. and um, they were involved in uh, covering the well, the collapse in France, really, and the um, and the evacuation. I mean, Dunkirk was sort of you know in in full flow, as it were. Yeah. Um, he ended up getting uh, one bullet in the coolant system realised he wasn't going to get back across the channel and just put it down on the sand, you know, big okay. open flats, uh, expanse of sand. Belly landed the thing, um, walked up the beach. Calais was still in British hands. He fought a rearguard action with the Queen Victoria rifles but ended up being captured. Um, okay. So so that was the end of his his war. That was the st- That's how the, the aeroplane got there. Um, mm. Okay. But it, uh, yeah, it, 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 that was definitely the the most um, uh, amazing find of uh, you know the, those sort of projects I've been involved in. Yeah, no, that's a <laughs> quite a story. Um, so, 
you were involved in setting up the museum at Tango, yeah, weren't you? Yeah. So how that happened was, you know, we'd um, we'd collected all this wreckage from different, you know, shot down aircraft. Things have been given to us. We got yeah. propellers, things that people had taken as souvenirs and trophies. Uh, we just got so much stuff together, and um, and eventually I. I just thought, well, let's write to the local council at, uh, in West Sussex because RAF Tangmere had closed. It was just derelict. You know, could we get a building there to set up a museum? Right. Didn't quite know how we were ever going to do it. Didn't have any money. You know, it was a bit of a pipe dream, really. And the council said, no, you know, terribly sorry. Uh, there's nothing here, which there wasn't. Um, and then um, my colleagues and I were offered a... A building which had been an RF building, uh, which was on land that now belonged to the parish council. Okay. Um, so they had a little uh, plot of allotments, um, and this was a sort of hut that it was not RAF radio workshop one time, yeah. uh, and we got that from the council for a a peppercorn rent. This was nineteen eighty two, uh, and um, and we went from there really. So. Um, and it just grew and grew and grew. And now, you know, Tangley Museum, I'm, I'm not involved there anymore. Um, I'm still in touch and still yep. do odds and ends for them and with them. But um, uh, it, it's become, I, I believe I'm right in saying that I think it is the most successful in terms of visitor numbers of independent aviation museums in the UK. Okay. So, um, and... Uh, you know, it, it's how it's grown from a little shed, basically, to what it is now with hangars, um, aircraft on loan from the RAF Museum. Uh, you know, it's an astonishing effort by a, a team of enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of whom are no longer with us, and I'm about the last man standing. You know? Wow, okay. Uh, Tangmere itself is, you know, one of those famous names in the um, sort of history of the RAF, and um, I know that. Um, both number 485 New Zealand Squadron and 486 New Zealand Squadron were yep. based there at different yep. times and um, you know the can you tell me a little bit about the just the history of the base and, and yeah it, it the, the base was um, it, it came into being by um, accident really there was a, a pilot um, Eric a chap called Eric Robbins in 1917 uh, he was on a cross-country flight in an Avro 504, mm-hmm. had uh, engine failure um, and had to get down in a bit of a hurry. And he looked around and he saw this big flat open expanse, uh, landed his uh, aircraft. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and effectively, he made a report that this would make a good airfield. Okay. Um, uh, and there was a chap before him, a, a chap called Dorman, Jeffrey Dorman, who had also done exactly the same thing and he'd filed a similar report so I think at that point the air ministry said well these two chaps have said it's a good site for an airfield so they built an airfield there but it was right at the end of the first world war and then it kind of never really it did come into use but it it became redundant almost immediately Uh, it went into care and maintenance and then it was reactivated in the 19 late 1920s 30s and then there was the the expansion of of um, in the expansion plan yeah. of uh, airfields and uh, and it's it went from you know from there really so that was its um, 
uh, it's history. But you mentioned the New Zealand squadrons, but there is another more famous uh, connection with a New Zealander and Tanglia, and that's Keith Park. Right. Um, because Keith Park was at one time station commander right. at Tanglia. I had actually read that. I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So he was. I can't remember the dates, but it was it was pre-war, obviously in the in the thirties. Yeah, I think it was late twenties to. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like you're that. right. I yeah, think it would yeah. be late twenties. And then, of course, as we know, he went on to to greater things, uh, and Tangmere became one of his airfields in yeah. in Number Eleven Group Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can we talk a little bit about Keith Park and uh, the fact that, yeah, as you say, he was in charge of Number 11 Group in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite well known that his tactics during the Battle of Britain are regarded as decisive. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, what, yeah. what, from your Battle of Britain historian point of view, could you tell me about... Um, um, yeah, I, I mean, um, uh, Keith Park was, and, and Dowding, their, their views were much aligned. And, of course, you had... Uh, um, uh, Lee Mallory in 12 Group had a completely different view of, of things. But um, I, I don't think there's any doubt, you know, if you look at what happened in 1940 and how Park managed 11 Group, that he was, a, you know, I, perhaps it would be going a stretch to say he was a master tactician, I don't know. But I I feel he probably was, you know, it, he had foresight and wisdom and uh, and the ideas that, I think if Lee Mallory had been uh, in charge of twelve of uh, eleven group, um, I think things could have been a bit different. Different and certainly, yeah, it, it wouldn't have. I can't say that it would have had a different outcome. The battle, but you know, if he was going to fight um, in eleven group as he intended to or, or tried to f- fighting from twelve group, I think it would have been a disaster. Yes, they would have lost all their bomber, uh, yeah, all yeah. their fighter bases from the yeah, bomb. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have lasted long. No, no. So, um, um, Park, sort of uh, after the Battle of Britain, was almost thrown on the heap, wasn't he? Well, um, yeah, to to an extent. Um, I I think he was, I say, sidelined. I mean, of course, he went off to Malta, where he did another. Uh, excellent job but of course he you know he he was Dowding's man and Dowding had uh, you know Dowding I mean there's a lot of nonsense he talked about Dowding in terms of that he was sacked and everything else well he, he kind of wasn't really he he um I think he he was treated badly in in lots of respects but you know he he was already due for retirement before yeah. the the war and yeah. and he was kept on you know and and it was I think pretty much by I don't know the exact circumstances. I, I, I think there's a bit of confusion about exactly what did happen. But he he left and and you know um, in, uh, in in November forty and um, uh, you know there's this perception that he was sacked after winning the Battle of Britain. Well, it wasn't really quite like that. No. Um, and but one of the th- yeah one of the things uh, about Dowding and the Battle of Britain, which is is always uh, quite interesting um to what well, to me anyway but then i'm a bit of a nerd um <laughs> is that the the battle of britain initially uh in 1941 was deemed to have been fought uh 
between the 8th of August 1940 and the 31st of October. Okay. Dowding comes along, writes his dispatch on the Battle of Britain, which incidentally he wrote in 1941, but wasn't published until 46. Yeah. Um, and he says, I've been thinking about these start dates and finish dates of the Battle of Britain. Well, in fact, he didn't mention the, the finish date. He was just silent on that. But he said, I, I don't think it started on the, on the 8th of August. I think it started on the 10th of July. Um, and he said, my reasoning for that is that this was the day when the Germans you know, started their attacks en masse mm. against Britain. Yeah. Well, in actual fact, if you look at the facts, that is complete nonsense. Okay. Um, really, the German attacks in any numbers were started probably on the 4th of July, um, so the question that I sort of asked myself a while ago was why didn't he choose the, the 4th of July and the reason I think is quite simple and actually quite interesting in that on the 4th of July the Germans bombed Portland Harbour heavily and they sank, ironically they sank uh, a, a ship which was an anti-aircraft ship which didn't really get off many shots before it was sunk by Stukas mm -hmm. um, and there was an enormous loss of life on this ship. And I can't remember the number, but I think it was 182 sailors were killed. Largest loss of life on a Royal Navy ship in home waters ever, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it was in, in a harbour, you know, on the south coast. The RAF, uh, RAF Fighter Command didn't even get off the ground. The oh. Germans bombed, you know, and just flew home. And the RAF Fighter Command were not there. It, it wasn't the fault of Fighter Command as such. It was that... The chain home radar system hadn't had incorrectly picked up echoes. That it, that there, there was some confusion whether or not the system was working properly, or, but for whatever reason, fighter command weren't scrambled. It wasn't right. their fault. But if you think about it, you know, Dowding couldn't have said, oh, it started on the 4th of July, because the question would be, well, where was fighter command that day then? But well, actually, <laughs> yeah. they're all on the ground. Um, <laughs> so he went for the 10th of July. But what's interesting is that you get to the end date of the Battle of Britain, which was originally set 31st of October. He mm. didn't change that. He didn't change the end of the Battle of Britain. But actually, the fighting that was going on at the end of October went on into November and December. Yeah. Well, why didn't he sort of extend that on? But I think he was being clever. And I think what he thought was, well, I'm going, or I went at you know, end of October, November. Uh, and I don't want my successor, Sholto Douglas, to have any share of the glory here. <laughs> right. So there really wasn't any... And actually Dowding says himself, you know, in his, um, in his dispatch, he says, he actually admits, he said, you know, the dates are really arbitrary. Um, and, you know, he just sort of always picked a date. But I, I just always find it interesting that he... He didn't change the end date, and I think there has to be some connection to not wanting his successor to get any of the glory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've thought that before, looking through the old newspapers, and you quite often, even into sort of early nineteen forty-one. Oh yeah, uh, yeah you yeah. quite often see the reports of raids, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. they kind of started up again later as well. And, yeah, yeah. But they, they, you know. The average person would think, okay, well, it all ended then. They gave up on the no, end of October. And, no, no, no. Yeah. no. And then they turned to the night bombing of London. Yeah, yeah. No, well, there was still daylight activity going on. Yeah. And, you know, for example, um, German fighter ace Helmut Vick, he shot down in, in 
in a you know daylight operation off the Isle of Wight on the twenty eighth of November, right. when the Battle of Britain was over. Right. But obviously, nobody had told him that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something that um, somebody mentioned to me the other day, and I'm just trying to think who it was because I've talked to so many people in the last two and a half weeks <laughs> on my trip that uh, they found that Keith Park actually flew two operational um, uh, sorties during the Battle of Britain, and he was entitled to the class but they didn't get it to. Uh, yeah i i um i have heard that i have i must admit i haven't sort of followed that up i, I know that has been researched and yeah and proven it, apparently oh, they, it? Yeah, apparently yeah. they agreed but yeah. they still didn't give it to them oh really yeah no, no that, I didn't, that's yeah. that's interesting yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's a bit a bit off you, you're gonna send me off now on a on a research <laughs> yeah. trail to get to the bottom of that i'm gonna have to so. try and remember who i might have actually i might, might not have been told to me it might have been someone on um i know who it was it was dillip dillip's oh, right okay he put it yeah. on facebook so yeah oh, okay. it was uh, um yeah. i found that fascinating i didn't yeah, realize yeah. he was flying operationally like that so that's interesting well i think the only i mean he did have his own sort of runabout hurricane we know about that mm, which yeah, yeah. With, with the code letters okay one or okay yeah okay one okay one yeah um so yeah, he flew during the Battle of Britain um, to airfields, but the criteria for the Battle of Britain clasp is that you have to have flown at least one operational sortie with an accredited squadron. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, if he flew with an accredited squadron, then that's a different matter, and he, he should be entitled to it. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, if but if he if he just flew his own accord. And thought, oh, I'll just you know, I'll just go off and shoot something down or try. And try. I don't know. Um, I think technically he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been entitled to, to it. Um, but it's an interesting, yeah, it is, it yeah. is. And of course, he was a fighter race in World War One. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he yeah. he had all the capability, yeah, yeah. and it must have been hard for him to stay on the ground. Actually, well, there were there was uh, I think it was Group Captain Vincent who was the he was the station commander at Northolt. I mean, he flew, um, certainly he flew some operational sorties in the Battle of Britain, but he, he'd attached himself to, a, I think I'm right in saying anyway, uh, had attached himself to one of his squadrons, you know, so he was flying one of their aircraft on one of their sorties, so he gets to qualify. Yeah, okay. So uh, under those sort of circumstances, we quite often see um, there'll be the wing leader, uh, who's usually a group captain, um, would be flying operationally. Are they attached to a squadron in that sort of thing, or does he qualify under being the wing leader? Well, in the Battle of Britain, it wouldn't have been um, they, you know, the the wing principle really. So the more came in 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 forty one, you know. Okay, right, so course, yeah. you'd have people like Barder or whatever it is, you know, leading the wing. Yeah. Um, and yes, there were wings as such during the Battle of Britain, but they were more, uh, it was more um, individual squadrons uh, operating independently with a, you know, squadron leader, yeah. flight lieutenant who on some occasions, you know, leading them. Um, so, uh, I mean, going back to Vincent, who I mentioned, who was the, he was the station commander at Northolt, um, yeah, he... he just wanted a piece of the action. Again, he was a First World War fighter pilot. I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he went off with his squadrons to see what he could do. I mean, his 
his argument for doing it was that um, you know, he went off to observe to see to you know see the difficulties that they were experiencing right. and all right. this sort of thing. You know, realistically, you should expect most of your leaders to go and yeah, actually yeah. have a look at the battle yeah, yeah, yeah. field like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, he was doing his job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and maybe that was what Park was doing as well. Who knows? It, could be. I mean, certainly Park used to fly around to his airfields. You know, we know that he used to visit yeah. them. Um, there's the, you know, the, the, the famous scene, of course, which again is portrayed, you know, going back to the Battle of Britain film, you know, where he, he yeah. lands in his hurricane and his white flying overalls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, moving on from Park, uh, Park um, to other New Zealanders, uh, New Zealand produced a lot of pilots um, who flew in the Battle of Britain. Um, and I was just wondering, did you, in your interviews and, and meetings and travels, ever actually come across, meet or get to know any of the New Zealand Battle of Britain pilots? The only two, um, I, I met one of them, but the other one was uh, Colin Gray, who I corresponded with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only one that I met was Al Deer, okay. um, who was a lovely chap. Um, met him you know a couple of times but um other than that i had no oh i know i there was um i said a lie there was i'm sure he was a new zealander keith lawrence yes he was yeah yep yeah keith lawrence um he lived here in the uk uh, and i went to see him interviewed him um in fact i think in my final cabinet drawers there i've got the interview notes <clears throat> he was with uh, 234 Squadron in the Battle of Britain. Right. And um, he was a, he was an interesting guy. Uh, re- it really was a fascinating chap to talk to. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've um, certainly come across him. Uh, I didn't get yeah. to talk to him, but uh, yeah, certainly uh, knew about him. Uh, he yeah. was one of our last, uh, last living, probably in the last five, I think. I th- he may have even... Was he even the last surviving the New very, Zealand battle? I, I think he was the second last. The oh, last okay. was uh, Bernard Brown. Yes. Uh, yeah, a yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I think Keith was the second yeah, last. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the Battle of Britain pilots that I've read a lot about because he was from my hometown was Bill Wells, or yeah. Edward Preston Wells, known as Bill to the family and known as Hawkeye. Or Hawkeye Wells, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, had, had you ever come across much of his story? or not, No, not a, uh, not a great deal. I've got a, feel, I've got a feeling that a very good friend of mine, Peter Cornwell, I think he wrote a biography of, of him. Um, but, uh, oh, really? Um, anyway, now I'm going off a bit of a tangent there. Sorry, yeah. um... No, um, he's not somebody that I n- actually know a great deal about. Um, I, I suppose, so with, with New Zealanders or Australians or Canadians, if they, if they lived overseas, and quite a few of them ended up staying here, yes. if they lived overseas, my interaction with them was very much, I'd write to them about something I specifically wanted to know. Yeah. So... I think that for some reason I, there was nothing that I didn't ever find reason to contact Wells, uh, not enough hours in the day or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of the others, the the Brits or even the Poles or whatever who were living here, I tended to meet them quite often at reunions or right. events. Right. So then you, you you get some sort of relationship going, or you you know you get engaged with them. Yeah. So that wasn't happening with the chaps who were living in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, or whatever. 
Yeah, well, well, Bill stayed here. He stayed on in the RF till I think the nineteen sixties. Did he? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then then he moved to Spain. Right. Uh, probably just before you got into it. Really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he was there for a while, but then he moved back here. And was in a retirement uh, home. Oh right. Um, okay. When he died, so. Oh okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, he was not anybody that I, you know, sadly sort of came across. No, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I I want to find more about him, but uh, uh, I've found a lot in uh, in the past, and I still haven't actually put it all together for my website. Yeah, right. it's only about yeah. twenty years. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. no, he's a fascinating chap. Um, one of the things I I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the numbers of the uh, Battle of Britain pilots. Uh, that we always see the list, like at the end of the Battle of Britain movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a bit of a difference in the number for New Zealand, and sometimes it says 129 or 135, and I think the the most recent research is 136 got the clasp, the right. Battle of Britain clasp, which, yep. as we discussed before, they had to fly in operationally during those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that it may be, my personal opinion, it does a little bit of a disservice to the New Zealanders who flew in the defence of Britain because um, you look at, well, the other big number that's next to New Zealand is the Poles. Yeah. But the Poles were only in the fighter squadrons yeah. during that. Their, yeah. their bomber squadron wasn't operational yeah. and that was it. So there was no one else anywhere else. Um, New Zealanders were right the way through the RAF at that time in the bomber command uh, in the Coastal Command, uh, Training Command, yeah. all of the hierarchy, all the way up to Keith Park. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that there were around 600 or over 600 New Zealanders in the RAF already when the war started on the 3rd of September 1939 because of a, a really good scheme that the RAF had with New Zealanders where they direct uh, recruited them from yeah. New Zealand and the RNZF would do the, their initial training and then they'd send them to Britain and then they'd go to a um, private school and yeah. do the rest of their flying training and then they'd go on to yeah. join the RAF properly um, and get a short service commission. There was, a, there was, as I say, 600 New Zealanders already when the war began and we kept on sending them from all the training courses that ramped up all the way through. So by, you know, September, October... Um, 1940, a, a, a year in, I'm absolutely sure that around between a thousand and and twelve hundred New Zealanders had gone to Britain to serve in the uh, RAF in various forms, and I just think you know the the fact that we kind of see this number of 136 defending Britain during that battle, it, it forgets all the others who were flying those raids against uh, the, um, the, the port, the, yeah, port, the, the channel ports, ports yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Coastal Command and in yeah, Bomber yeah. Command. And, you know, some of them were, you know, trying to attack the airfields or yeah. roads or all that sort of thing. Um, we had 75 Squadron operating already by that stage. Yeah. They started in April 1940. That was Wellington's, was it? Wellington's, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I just... I just wish that they got a little bit more recognition. You see a lot of recognition of the Poles and the yeah. Czechs. And, yeah. and the New Zealanders were all volunteers. They all um, 
they all came from the furthest point on the earth that they could come to yeah. to go to Mother England or yeah. home as they it was yeah. referred to in those days. Yeah, and I, I just would love to see a little bit more recognition of the Kiwis. I, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I do completely agree with you, um, and uh, you know, sadly. Uh, I have to say that uh, there are so many injustices, if you want to call it that, in terms of how people are recognised. Of course, yeah. Um, And that's not to put down the New Zealand uh, aspect at all, you know, far from it. But, you know, you see it all the time when you start to research this. You know, again, you come back to the arbitrary dates of the Battle of Britain. You can get somebody who is shot down on the 9th of July in RAF Fighter Command. They're not a Battle of Britain pilot. Because Dowding decided it started the day after, exactly, you know. Yeah. So there's all those sort of things, you know. Um, and the New Zealand question is one of those, and there are just so many. And and actually, if you look at you know Bomber Command um, as a whole during the Battle of Britain period, you know I, I can't remember off the top of my head the, the the losses in Bomber Command during 1940, but it was massive. Oh, I mean, it was huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Compared to the losses of Fighter Command, which yeah. is you know just over five hundred, um, and uh, and 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 actually, if you look and if you read carefully Churchill's speech, you know the finest uh, the um, uh, Never in the Field of Human Conflict speech. Um, you know he mentions Bomber Command far more than he does Fighter Command, yeah. but it's been taken you know as the few were fighter pilots but you know were they what's he talking about here you know if you actually read it very carefully it seems that he's talking about the wider you know um uh, raf family if you like the wider you know grouping of uh, so coastal command bomber command you know they don't get a look in with battle of britain and Uh, also training command i mean those instructors they're keeping the the, the replacements come through yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. but uh, you're absolutely right about the new zealanders and um you know, it's, it's um, you know, I, I have my view about, um, if you like, new memorials that are being put up. I think, that, you know, we're, we're getting to, or some places are getting sort of, getting slight sort of memorial saturation, you know. Mm, but yes. but um, I think there probably would be a good case for having a memorial somewhere to New Zealanders who, you know, came and fought. You know, uh, you know, there's there's this yeah. old thing, isn't there, that's trotted out, which of course is completely false. You know, 1940. You know, Britain stood alone. Well, yeah, we stood alone with, you know, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, India, India. You yeah. know, everywhere. Yeah, you know, um, even Barbados and little places. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, we were all so. Um, but I think I think you know a, a more proper recognition, if you like, of. Uh, of the part New Zealand has played in the RAF in the early days of the war, particularly, mm. uh, would I, I think um, I think it's something you should campaign for, Dave. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, yeah. And if we look at the the whole war, uh, it was around ten and a half thousand New Zealanders came to Britain uh, to to serve with the RAF. Yeah, um, that's from RNZF, so there was already the RAF guys as well. Yeah. So ten and a half thousand, and a third of them didn't come home. They yeah, know, they yeah. lost one third of well, them. Well, so. you know, earlier today, you and I looked at the um, the Royal Air Forces Memorial at Runnymede. Yeah. You know where there's twenty odd thousand names of people that were airmen that were missing in Northwest Europe. Yeah. And a lot of those, as we 
discovered today were were, were kiwis. You know, yeah, there's, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. That was phenomenal to go there, um, and thank you very much for taking me there. It was something I knew about, but I, you know, had it on my list. I didn't think I was going to get there, and um, to look at the names of and these are. These are all men who have no known grave. They're yeah. the ones that, you know, they're the missing. And to go there and look down the list of names, and I actually saw three or four from my hometown mm. that I know. Yeah, yeah. I know their stories because I've written them up. And yeah, yeah. Then we saw the first one I saw was John Collins of Seventy Five Squadron. I think was the first of the Wellingtons to be shot down in nineteen forty. And uh, and Bert Whippity, who was the um, well-known Maori pilot who fought in Brewster Buffaloes in Singapore and shot down Japanese aircraft there and then came to Britain and flew Spitfires with Fire Fire Just, just flying uh, buffaloes and shooting down Japanese aircraft alone is uh, is quite something, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's remarkable. There weren't many that actually did it. Um, him, him and Jeff Fiskin and I, I don't know if many other... Mm. Um, Kiwis or even Brits managed to shoot down any Japanese. With Has he buttons. ever been written about? I think you've written about him, but uh, uh, I, there's a little bit out there, but right. uh, uh, not a lot. I mean, I don't think there's any books or anything like that on what he's like. No, no family surviving, or I, I really don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. He'd, yeah. he'd make a fascinating, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. a really yeah. fascinating story. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that. Running me, what a what a place! Uh, and we had it all to ourselves. There's no one yeah, around. Uh, it is an astonishing place. I was yeah. glad that I was able to take you there. It, it's uh, it's just very moving, and there's so many names there that what that you recognised. Mm. And every time I go there, I I look for specific names of people that I've researched or been involved in. Yeah. And in fact, there's quite a few names there of um, of Battle of Britain pilots who who were missing who. And no longer missing, and I've yeah. been involved in you know finding or identifying them. Right. In some cases, you know, not actually finding them as such, but but even um, uh, there's there's one chap, um, uh, a chap called uh, Rushma, uh, who was a Spitfire pilot with Six Hundred Three Squadron. Um, you know, I researched his case, and he he was buried as an unknown airman, but eventually we managed to you know find enough evidence to persuade the authorities that this is the great definitely this is the grave of Rushma. Right. so he's now got a, a stone with his name on but he, his name is actually still at, at Runnymede right. because actually uh, this is uh, kind of interesting because people assume that once they're found the names are removed from Runnymede but that isn't the case and there's actually uh, dozens it probably runs into a couple of hundred at least of pilots and aircrew who've since been accounted for right. but their names are still there right um, and the War Graves Commission position is that their names will stay there until such time as they have to, if they ever have to replace the, the stones, yeah. uh, the panels, which the panel, I can't yeah. see it ever doing because it's not going to need it. Yeah. Um, in those instances, they would not put their names back on. Um, uh, so I would say there's probably about a hundred, at least a hundred. I, 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 uh, not all Battle of Britain pilots, obviously, there's only no. about seven no. or eight of them. Yeah. But, um, you know, you've got instances where, for example, in Holland, you know, um, wrecks of uh, bombers have been found, you know, when they've been draining the polders and what have you. Yeah. So, you know, they found 
multiple crews and you know perhaps seven men at a time in a you know whatever in the sterling or yeah. wellington or whatever so there are quite a few that can be taken off that list really right. at, at running meet but it's right. nice that they're commemorated there anyway absolutely yes you know because yeah. they were originally missing so i think yeah. they should probably stay there yeah i agree, I agree. Yeah, yeah so um just to sort of finish up, can you tell me about your work with the magazines? Uh, I know that you were doing Britain at War for a while. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I took over Britain at War from my friend who, who started the magazine, uh, Martin Mace, and um, I, ran, uh, I ran that as editor for um, two or three years, but uh, on, a, on a freelance contract mm-hmm. basis. Um, and then I left there and... Um, uh, approached a another publisher and said, you know, you know, what about um, uh, a German military history uh, magazine? So, you know, I'm sort of thinking of, you know, hang on, I'm I've gone over to the dark side now. <laughs> but, um, but surprisingly, the publisher that I approached, Warner's, um, uh, they said, yeah, we kind of like that idea, um, and the the big. The deal breaker would be whether or not WH Smith, the big news agents here, would stock it or not. Carry it, yeah. um, and they said, "Yep, we're up for that." Um, but we we pitched it very very carefully. I mean, the the one thing that we are scrupulously um, careful about is that it isn't seen as some kind of celebration of German military prowess or whatever. You know, far from it. Yeah. it it's an objective, truthful look at. German military history from 1914 to 1945. The First World War bit is less difficult. Um, once you get onto the Nazi period, you know, you're into some pretty dark stuff, yes. potentially. Yeah. Um, and, and we took the view, or I took the view, that we're not going to shy away from this. We're not just going to tell stories about, you know, pretty Messerschmitt 109s painted lovely colours in 1940 or whatever, yeah. you know, we're going to tell it all. So we we run stuff on German war crimes um, because we've got to, you know, and, and if we didn't, you know, it, it, it could be that we'd be perceived as being something that actually we're not, you yeah. know, that we're some kind of weird far-right um, <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, but, uh, you know, and again, some people sort of raise their eyebrows, of, oh, time, Iron Cross. Because there's this perception that the Iron Cross is some Nazi symbol. Right. Well, it isn't. It's not. You know, the German Bundeswehr today still used the Iron Cross as a symbol. It predated the First World War, you know, and it was hijacked by the Nazis for their purposes. But right. it's not a Nazi symbol. So that's how we, you know, that's how we approached it. And an Iron Cross seemed to be a, uh, a an appropriate title for something that covered First and Second World War. You know German military history. Absolutely. So, uh, did you find um, compared with Britain at War, is it as easy to get uh, articles to come in from journalists, or is it hard, is a harder topic? It's it's uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I would say that with Britain at War, um, there was there was no difficulty ever getting content. You know, it was coming out of our ears. You know, yeah, it was yeah. everywhere, and people we were turning stuff down. Yeah. It is a bit harder with German military stuff, um, and uh, you know I, I have to look sort of fairly carefully too at the credentials of the people that are writing, right? Because what I don't want is to publish something and then find that this person, even if the article is not of any political leanings, you know, suddenly find that this person has been 
you know, prosecuted for being a member of some far right organisation. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it has its um, uh, has its challenges because of the subject matter. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Uh, I guess you get a lot of um, interest in the the German World War One aircraft stuff. Yeah, yeah, we, we've got you know we've, there are people that have. Uh, you know, over the years, you know, and, and you would have done the same. You know, you build up this international network of people that are subject specialists. You know, and and you build up a relationship with them. You know, very often these days, uh, you know, via the internet. Um, but there are some, you know, incredible subject uh, subject specialists out there on German First World War aviation. Yeah, you know, a chap called Jack Harris in um, in the states. Um, uh, Gregory van Wingarden, you know, there are people that just know the German aviation subject, you know, yeah. uh, they're just kings at their their, their game. Um, there are actually also quite a lot of um, German military historians who are German. Um, they, and, and they have access to brilliant content and we do use them from time to time and they, they've written some of their best pieces because um, they have a better understanding of perhaps the archive material they're looking at yeah. or understand the nuances of whatever was happening or what was being said or whatever. Um, but And we've got a few, uh, prof- I mean, professional academic German national, as in they are German, yeah. um, historians who write for us. Um, but I've I've had quite a few who are... They would like to write for us, but they're kind of, they're just wary of it because, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, in Germany today, and I can completely understand it, there is a degree of don't mention the war, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think some of these people, particularly academics, don't want to publish. They, they know what we do. They've seen our magazine. They know that, you know, it's no, there's no political yeah. undertones, but yeah. they're thinking, oh, uh, I don't know, if I'm seen for write for this magazine, English language magazine, you know, I'm going to be branded as something that I'm not. Yeah. So we've had quite a few who said, well, thanks, but no thanks. Okay. Which okay. is interesting. Not even thinking about using pen names or, you know, pseudonyms. No, no. I suppose I could go back. There's a couple that I'd really like to write for us, and perhaps I could go back and suggest that. But, mm. you know, the, the, that was their only objection. They didn't want it to be known in Germany that they'd written this stuff, you know. I guess in the academic circles, uh, you know, there's a lot of woke stuff out there yeah. in the universities that yeah, yeah, they yeah, would yeah, try yeah. and cancel them yeah, if they yeah, did that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, have you found that there are German uh, historians or writers that have done like you and I have done, have gone to veterans and recorded interviews over the years and built up yeah. their own archives with German there, there, there are There are a few. There are a few very specialist um, uh, Luftwaffe guys who, yep. uh, you know, I have to say they're all probably a bit long in the tooth now because these chaps were um, probably older than, certainly quite a lot older than me. Yeah. Um, and I'm no spring chicken, so. Um, uh, but they were going in the late sixties, early seventies, when of course all these veterans were still around. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've got books here on my bookshelf behind me, uh, written by German hi- historians who did uh, unit histories and um, uh, who specialised in particular aircraft types and what have you. So, the, so the, there are the, there were quite a few, um, and of course they. But but nothing like the level of interest that 
that you get in the states or yeah. you know here or Australia, New Zealand, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of you know air interest in our own military history, yeah. and again you know completely understandable. The Germans really and collectively not desperately interested in their own military history for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, um, can you tell people listening how they can get hold of your books and the magazine? And um, oh well, um, the uh, most of the books I've done recently are uh, published by. Uh, Grub Street Publishing, mm-hmm. um, so I couldn't give you offhand the um, the, the website, but it's easily findable. Um, so that's that's mostly been uh, the the publisher that I've used. There's also Frontline Books, who are part of um, a, a part of an imprint of Pen and Sword, um, and I've done a, a few others for random publishers. Uh, I, for example, I I did the um, uh, the Haynes manual on uh, the operations manual on the Battle of Britain, but, right. but sadly, um, the uh, Haynes have now they haven't gone out of, of business. But um, Haynes were big on, uh, as you know, on on car manuals. Mm, yeah. Um, and then when cars became impossible to really service on your front drive unless you could plug it into a computer, yeah. they decided to diversify and they did all these uh different uh, things you know there was a haynes manual of chicken keeping and you know right. pig farming or whatever knitting and then they got into military stuff and and it became a very successful line for them yeah. but they recently sold out to a french publisher who decided to to ditch all the general interest stuff yeah. um and um uh yeah so all these titles which i believe were very very popular yeah just fell by the wayside which for me was a bit unfortunate because i just signed another contract with haynes to do a follow-up to this which was the raf fighter pilots manual okay um so that that didn't happen but um if so this is not you'd be able to get it i think from possibly from amazon or whatever so it's the battle of britain raf operations manual and what it is it it tells you how the command and control system worked um it, it's the nitty gritty um uh, you know the the bolts if you like of how it all nuts and bolts of how it all works right, right. um that is actually also available as a uh, an ebook now not by Haynes but by Warner's who publish the magazine Iron Cross that I edit right. so that's available uh, on Warner's website um but pretty much all the others are are grub street titles um yeah a few pen and sword ones but mostly mainstream sort of stuff okay and with um iron cross is that mainly distributed in britain or is it overseas um it it's the main distribution up until very recently was just solely uk it is available overseas um, but mainly by subscription. Yep. Um, I don't believe it's in any other European um, news agent sort of shops, and I don't think it is in either Australia or New Zealand. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure not. I haven't seen it. No. no. Yeah. Um, and it's in in the UK. It's in most of the big WH Smiths and the travel outlets, you know, airports and things like that. Yeah. Um, 
but we have just got distribution in the United States. Okay. All right. Um, so it'll be in all the Barnes and Noble stores and what have you across the States, which will, I think, probably help our sales figures considerably. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of interest in the subject in the States. Yeah. I have to say, you know, um, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but, you know, I, I sort of slightly worry about the leanings of some of the people who might buy the magazine in America. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, I think if they're of that persuasion, when they get hold of their magazine, they're going to be severely disappointed when they find out it's not what they perhaps thought it was going to be. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they might learn something. Too. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they might suddenly learn that actually the, the people that they sort of uh, sadly idolise are, well... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's the scene from the Blues Brothers coming to my mind? With the yeah. Nazis on the bridge. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Andy. It's been a pleasure to spend the day with you and then uh, to be able to interview you about your no, career so, and life. And well, I hope it's been of some interest to yeah, your definitely. your listeners. I'm sure it has. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.